This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio with guest host Jane Brown. As always, great to have you along. Libby returns to the show tomorrow. We know how devastating COVID-19 has been for Ontario's long-term care homes. Now we know the extent of this devastation. In a surprise data release yesterday, the provincial PCs revealed the actual numbers around COVID-19-related deaths in nursing homes. There are nearly 180 outbreaks in long-term care homes between Windsor and Cornwall. Five in Toronto alone have recorded more than 20 related deaths, and four facilities in the province have more than 100 residents who've tested positive for COVID-19. If you'd like to check out the home-by-home outbreak, there is a link on our website at zoomerradio.ca under latest news. Joining me to discuss this issue and others related to older Canadians and COVID-19 our Monday Zoomer squad, as always, Marissa Lennox, Chief Policy Officer at CARP, David Kravitz, VP at Zoomer Media, and Peter Mugridge, Senior Editor at Zoomer Magazine. Hi, guys. Hey. Hi. Hi, Jane. Hi. How are you? Marissa, was this worse than you expected? Uh, well, unfortunately, not much of this is, uh, comes as a, as a big shock. I think that the numbers we saw today are deeply troubling. Um, when you look at what percentage of deaths in Ontario, obviously we heard Dr. Tam say 50% of deaths in long-term care, sorry, deaths in Canada have been in long-term care homes. When you look at numbers in Ontario, it's actually close to 80% of deaths. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it's deeply troubling, um, but not um, something that was necessarily um, unexpected. We need to remember that a lot of the incidents we're seeing in these homes are not directly related to homes being overwhelmed because of COVID, but because of challenges that existed long before, and that will persist if no action is, t- is taken. I definitely want to address that. Uh, first, David, to you, what, what are we to make of these numbers? Well, I echo uh, Marissa's comment. I don't think it's terribly surprising. And I think the issue that's going to emerge loud and clear is what percentage of those deaths could have been prevented by having better resources in those facilities. If you're saying that older people are going to be disproportionately affected, that's true of the quote-unquote regular flu. If you're saying there's going to be fatalities every flu season and they are going to be disproportionately among older people, okay, but is the system at least, you know, at functioning at maximum level to prevent what it can prevent? Now we're seeing that this is not true. And I think that's where the outrage is, and that's where the uh, pressure's got to be on reforming this. So at least if we're, op- we're operating, we're doing it at the highest functioning rate we can, knowing, you know, some people are going to, old people are going to be, older people are going to be affected more, but at least let us do everything we can. But when we see all these deficiencies in the system, 
that's where uh, I think you're going to see a lot of uh, anger, and you're already starting to see that. Right. Uh, Peter, so anybody who has a loved one in long-term care has to be constantly anxious these days. Yeah, but, um, you know, having having said that about the homes that there are outbreaks, there are a number of homes where there are no outbreaks. Mm-hmm. And I think afterwards it'll be interesting to, uh, you know, uh, evaluate what those homes did to prevent outbreaks, why they did so well, and apply those lessons to <laughs> the rest of the homes that didn't do well, you know. And, and so it's going gonna, it's gonna to take a little bit of, um, you know, distance from the pandemic where we can look back and, and, you know, talk to the homes, talk to the people who ran those homes that had, you know, no outbreaks and see what they did right. That's an interesting observation, Peter. Do you do you think, Marissa, it's a lot more than luck that there are homes, the majority of homes in the province still do not have an outbreak? Mm-hmm. Is it is it because of the difference in the way these various homes are operated? I think that it's unequivocal that a lot of homes operate differently, and um, that speaks to sort of the regulatory structure that exists in Ontario, how we're monitoring these homes, what we expect of these homes. Some homes are profitable, others are not. Does that speak to how well-staffed they are? In some cases, it does. Some are adequately staffed, some are not. Some spend more on food, some do not. Um, Some care more for their patients than others. Uh, Some homes are better maintained than others. Um, And so these things, I think, are, you know, unfortunate realities as long-term care homes. Remember, many are for-profit, some are municipal, some are not-for-profit. There does seem to be a trend that for-profit homes, and some of the studies that have been done, have performed less well than others. Um, So I think all of these things will be examined after the fact and ought to be. We want you to weigh in as well. Uh, Many of us have had or do have loved ones in long-term care. If you're a regular visitor to a loved one outside of the pandemic, I mean, certainly you've seen what the the home has done during the pandemic, but you certainly would have observations about what is done well and what is done not so well. We want to hear from you uh, this half hour, 416-360-0740, toll-free. 1-866-744-740 to get in on this discussion about long-term care with our Zoomer squad. Um, David, when we think about uh, the situation now and the 180 homes that have outbreaks, I mean, this is, this is a very large issue, but what can be done to curb the spread of COVID-19 now that it's in these homes? Is there anything that they can be doing at the moment? Well, I think I think globally, uh, no, because I think it's case by case. And what resources do they have? We're, we're seeing everything from sending in the army to sending in volunteers. So I don't want to be pontificating from a distance with, you know, a sweeping statement that affects all of these homes. What I would like to point out, though, is let's say there was no COVID-19. You still have a population, by definition, whose health is compromised, who are more prone to disease and particularly infection in a, in a quote-unquote regular year uh, without, without COVID-19. Now you take a look at these facilities and say, i got a facility where maybe there's one shower for every 20 people. Well, that's going to be a hotbed of infection. That's going to be a place that's difficult to control uh, germs and infection of any kind. So we have to look at the facilities. Now i got a place that's got enough staff to 
you know, uh, supervise people and test residents. And I got another place that doesn't have enough staff. So you, you really have to take a look at what do we need to do to prevent uh, any disease? Are we maximized for our ability to control and prevent any rapid spreading, knowing that the population, before you even start, when you open your doors in the morning, you're dealing with a population that is at risk. And clearly, the system is not up to that job. Peter, would you like to add to this? Uh, you know, last week the Premier was choking back tears, uh, in part because of his personal situation with his mother-in-law having tested COVID-19 in one of these homes. But he said, we have to do better. Mm-hmm. What does better look like? Well, it, it doesn't look like what he did previously to the to the pandemic. You know, he, he said a lot of good things about putting an iron ring around, uh, you know, long-term care. And, uh, you know, um, but... But the government did cut back on inspections. It sort of, uh, uh, I was talking to one, um, you know, a a body that licenses personal um, support workers, PSWs, and they said that the government had taken away the designation of PSW, so it was allowing sort of untrained people into these homes. The government was doing a lot of things to cut costs, and unfortunately, the pandemic struck after they had cut costs and they're looking like they got caught with their, uh, you know, they got caught unawares by it. Yes. Uh, I want to go to the phones now. Pat uh, in Toronto is on the line. Pat, what would you like to add to this discussion? Well, I have a good friend and what he did was take his elderly relative out of the home and brought him to his own house. And I think people, if we had this situation again, I think a lot of people would do that. Yeah. And how is that? How are they doing? How are oh, the two of them doing? Yeah, totally well. Other than, you know, he's not used to having the older person in the house, but she's doing very well. Oh, and, that's uh, good to hear. And uh, it's a way to avoid it. I mean, I guess the question is, how many people, if they had that chance to go back right now, would they go back and say, yes, I'll take my, my aged parents and bring them home? the next three months. Mm-hmm. I guess it's too late for that now, Marissa. Well, but it might happen again. Right. So, um, it, it is too late in homes with an outbreak. Um, and I'm, I, uh, your caller is, is right on point insofar as we've heard so many calls from CART members asking whether or not they should do the same. The reality is many people may not have the capacity to meet that person's care needs at home. After all, people are in long-term care because their needs are so great they can't be met at home. Having said that, some people may feel they have the capacity even temporarily to meet those care needs in order to limit the risk of them getting exposed to COVID-19. And it is something a lot of families, I can tell you, are considering. Um, uh, it is why a lot of early advocates said, you know, get get your loved ones out while you still can, because when there's an outbreak, uh, there's no one in and there's no one out mm-hmm. at the risk of spreading this infection yeah. further than it's already spread. What did you think about uh, the $4 an hour premium for workers, Marissa? What, what would uh, CART members say about that? That's, that it, is good news. It's, it's good news, um, and it's very important. Um, there needs to be a strategy. One of the biggest challenges that we've seen here is with respect to staffing. This is a necessary. Uh, con- this is a necessary um, uh, 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 issue. This is an issue that we're seeing in homes straight across the country. Um, our homes are chronically understaffed. So one of the things we do need is a strategy to not only acquire staff but to retain 
staff. And a lot of that stems from pay. People in this industry are very poorly paid. They receive a salary or a, you know, they, an hourly wage, if you will, at between $14 and $16 an hour to do very difficult work. Um, from bathing, changing, dental care, uh, dementia care, and now coupled with um, you know, disease prevention and control, isolation strategies, putting yourselves at risk in these environments that are really hotbeds for the spread of an infection. Um, we need to have that conversation about how we value care workers. So I think this is an important step. Quebec did the same thing. But I think we need to look at it on a long-term scale. This is only a temporary measure that's been introduced by both of those governments. It needs to be a long-term measure. David, it really is mind-boggling that, uh, as Marissa just laid out, the kind of work that these PSWs do and the and the the compensation they they receive, which is basically minimum wage. I mean, do you see this four dollar an hour premium sticking once this is all over? Yes, yes, I think it'll be very difficult to. Uh, the pressure is going to be to do more for these uh, uh, PSWs, not less. And I don't think there's going to be any appetite to going back to the, uh, you know, what happened before. In fact, I think there's going to be more pressure to do more. But I also want to point out that when we talk about what's deficient here, we have to take a look at the whole system, including at home. People are bringing people back home. Well, what about at-home care itself, which is a whole other sector, before you need to go into a long-term care home? The system is trying to uh, push people you know, out of the hospitals and out of the institutions into home environments with very spotty uh, funding, very spotty standards, uh, again, inadequate resources. So if they're going to fix things when this is over, they're going to have to start by looking at what do we mean by care, period. How much of it can be done at home and by whom? How much of it can be done uh, in an institutionalized setting and by whom? How do we allocate those resources? What are our standards? What are our quality controls? It's a big topic, and they've looked at it piecemeal and band-aids here and band-aids there, and now they're going to have to take a yeah, much and, and we're paying wider price. look at everything. And we're paying the price for that band-aid uh, approach now. Yes, we are. Yeah. Well, you're uh, listening to our Zoomer squad here on Fight Back. Jane for Libby, along with Marissa Lennox, Chief Policy Officer at CARP, David Kravitz, VP at Zoomer Media, and Peter Mugridge, Senior Editor at Zoomer Magazine. Annette from Etobicoke would like to get in on the conversation. Go ahead, Annette. I'm wondering why the doctors didn't pick up on their problem in the old age home before all this came down. Do they visit? They must. I'm 85. I haven't been in an old age home. I live in my own home. But do the doctors visit them? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's an excellent point. Marissa, would you like to speak to sure. that? Sure. A lot of long-term care homes have sort of resident physicians, if you will, that will go in and they'll they'll meet all the residents in one day. So that was certainly happening Um, One of the challenges that we've seen is with respect to testing. Even if you do test someone on one day, the next day they could be be positive for COVID-19, in which case that test really didn't matter. Um, And then in terms of homes even getting access to those tests, that's also been a big challenge. So there are a number of reasons why outbreaks are difficult to control in these homes, um, vulnerability of residents, close proximity. So I think we really need to be looking at the whole picture. But 
Um, to your point, I think what you're asking is, you know, were doctors going in these homes? Sure, they were. They weren't in there every single day. Now we do know that many nurses and doctors are being redeployed. People with transferable skills from hospitals are being redeployed to help out in long-term care settings, and that's, of course, very important. Annette, did you have a follow-up question? No, that was my my thing, is even before the COVID hit, right? you know, the doctors should have picked up that they weren't cared for, that they weren't looked after. I just don't know how many times a day, how many times a week the doctors visit them. Right. Before I let you go, I just want to know what has been the secret to you being able to stay home to 85? (laughs) Well, I'm, I'm handicapped. I've been in my home home since 1956, so I try and manage by myself. Um, My daughters all live far away. Um, I have someone bring in my groceries, which was very hard to get started because I couldn't find anybody. Nobody would answer the phones. So it was hard. Um, I haven't driven my car in six weeks. So I was lucky enough also to get my insurance canceled for till September to save if some I can money that's walk good. by then to get to my water classes which I do and get to my doctors and my groceries by myself right well, you know and I was just scared to go out well it's good that you're staying home and we really appreciate the call and and you provide inspiration for all of us for sure Thanks, Annette. Thank Thank you. Thanks. Um, David, I also wanted to ask, I mean, further to talking about the broken elements of long-term care, we knew that was the case as a result of the Elizabeth Wetlawfer inquiry. And we also know that, and Peter brought this up, that thorough inspections were down to single digits in some 600 long-term care homes across the province. Only nine of them had thorough inspections last year. So it's almost like we were set up for the worst to happen. Well, also, and Annette made a good point on her call, and I thought if if I'm a doctor and I'm going into these homes uh, without COVID, and I'm looking at some of these facilities, I'm saying, you know, this place is just an accident waiting to happen. We need more showers. We need more bathrooms. We need more this, that. What is the mechanism for that doctor to be reporting into the Ministry of Health, I don't mean in a underhanded way, right. but to say, look, this facility uh, is not set up to deal with um, what might happen, what might come. I, I'm blowing the whistle on this, in a sense. Uh, I don't know what that means. I, I think, I'm, I think the long I'm term ignorant term. of it, but she made she made a great point to call her in. That you know, when they're observing the the normal state of affairs, are they alarmed? And who are they telling? I, I think the long-term care doctors are so overwhelmed by the number of cases they have to see that that's all they can concentrate on, you know. Like, they come in and it's one doctor. I'm not blaming the doctors. I'm yeah. No, but I, I just think they have so much on their hands on, on a day-to-day basis with these with uh, individual patients that they, they just don't have time for the big picture. And nor should they. You know, like, it, it, this is something that... Uh, that the the government should have you know it's it's their responsibility to fix these things they they have a lot of people employed at the at the uh, ministry of health and ministry of long term care like it's it's their responsibility mm-hmm. yeah. well you also have to remember you know some people may be shocked to learn that there are um, homes with four bedroom wards people are separated many, by curtains many homes yeah in many of the homes um, particularly some of the older homes. 
uh, that were built in the 70s. And so this is really an opportunity for governments, for us to really have a national conversation about reimagining long-term care and the kind of care that you would expect if you ended up in that setting. Um, Because at this point, it's very difficult for people to know what's the right home. Um, Does this does this home provide me with it, my own bathroom? Most likely not. Does this home, do I at least have my own bedroom? Some of them do not. And people don't have a lot of choice when it comes to long-term mm-hmm. care because the wait lists are so long. So the likelihood of you really getting into long-term care is, is, is slim to none um, unless you are really on a crisis list. And then again, there really aren't a lot of options that are available to you. I I promised a listener, Evelyn, that I would bring this up with the Zoomer squad, uh, an email I received from Evelyn. She says the big reason for most of the deaths in nursing homes is that most of the residents have DNR on their charts, do not resuscitate. Could any of you speak to this, how this factors into the death count and whether it's even relevant? I'm, I'm hesitant. To, I, I, I would be hesitant because I don't. You, you have to know the medical history of each person, yeah. mm-hmm. um, and whether they would have been able to resuscitate them or not. Um, so, if I have no such set of instructions, and I someone had no set of instructions and they passed away, and versus someone who did, I think it would need its own uh, analysis. And that individual still had COVID-19, regardless of whether they were resuscitated or not. Right. right. Uh, Peter, we had um, a story the other day about all the new words that have come out of the pandemic. Mm. And one of them is COVID-idiots. COVID-idiots, yes. And and you've conducted a poll on everything Zoomer.com about what should be done with (laughs) COVID-idiots. Yeah, I I mean, I I did it... um you know, right at the height of the fear of the pandemic, so maybe a week or two ago. And um, and the results, now, now remember, the, it was geared towards an older audience, so, so it would skew the results somewhat. But 96% of people said people who break public health restrictions should be fined or jailed. And um, 4% said they should be warned. So that, it's sort of this overwhelming you know, uh, flood of, uh, uh, from, from the older uh, population that, that they want people who break uh, public health restrictions to be punished. But I think, you know, I, I, I mean, it's all well and good, but I think it's created a bit of a culture of fear and a culture of mistrust in the, in the province, you know, and especially in the city where you can't do anything without people looking at you and lecturing you and, you know, it's sort of like a, you know, it's sort of backfired almost, these restrictions. And, and people are snitching on their neighbors and their family members. And, and uh, so it's it's also had a negative effect as well, I think. David, is it generational that, uh, because my 20-something children seem to be very responsive to the physical distancing measures. Um, so I'm just, I'm curious, I mean, where Peter said that older people would be more responsible. Is that a generational thing? I don't know if that's even true. I think that there's, uh, I mean, a couple weeks ago on this very show, we were talking about how millennials were lecturing their parents about not taking it seriously enough. So um, I think it's, it varies by the generations. I think there's examples from every generation uh, and there's also a question of where do you live, what are your facilities, you're walking down the sidewalk uh, and you look like you're six feet away 
and a person figures out you're five feet 11 away, that's kind of nonsense. But if it looks like you're trying, I mean, the ability to enforce these laws, uh, even if they existed, is, I would say, pretty nil unless it's very blatant, unless it's you know deliberately blatant. Uh, but if I'm, you know, five and a half feet away as I'm walking down the sidewalk, then I'm six and a half, and then I vary to five foot ten, six foot three. <laughs> is anybody monitoring me right. by inch and, and scolding me? It's just not. Uh, I, I'm with Peter on this. I think it reaches a point where it's kind of futile. Yeah. Yeah. It's time and for I, I uh, it's time for our final day. thoughts. Sorry, Marissa, your final thought as we uh, wrap up this week's Zoomer Squad chat. Sure. So um, to Dave's point, I, I agree. I don't know that it's necessarily generational because we also saw images of millennials crowding the beaches of Miami uh, early on in this crisis too. So it's sort of individualized. Um, to Peter's point. You know, it's interesting. I've, I've spoken with a few people now that say that their mental health has been impacted deeply by this because they walk down the streets and they feel like people are judging them because maybe they're walking cl- too close to their partner. Um, so to the extent that it's created a bunch of vigilantes, I think that that's probably <laughs> the wrong thing. On the other hand, I think it is important that people do self-isolate and that there are, you know, particularly those that have been traveling and that there are consequences for people choosing to ignore these laws because they are so important and for the most part have helped to actually flatten the curve. And Marissa, we will be addressing uh, the worsening of mental health around COVID-19 in the second half of the show. Uh, David, your final thoughts. Well, I want to pick up on something about the what I think we should be getting ready for, and that is a tremendous amount of regional variation in what these rules are and how fast we come back because we're treating it nationally and maybe provincially, but it's, it's enormous. For example, 67 actual deaths per million people in Canada, 65 per million in Ontario, pretty close, 180 per million in Quebec, three times the death rate, 20 per million in B.C. So if I'm living in B.C., and then I won't even talk about Saskatchewan with three deaths or four deaths total, the pressure on reopening, the pressure on what am I doing all this for, is only going to get worse. And let's just try this thought experiment. Supposing there were four deaths in Ontario and 960 deaths in Saskatchewan. How excited do you think we'd be about shutting down the whole province? Mm-hmm. So this is coming. I'm not saying it's a good thing, and I do say we have to obey the rules. I totally agree with that. But get ready for a fragmentation into different regions with different numbers the longer this goes on the pressure to relax some of the rules will not be evenly distributed it'll vary tremendously from community to community peter your final thoughts well i think we came up with a no wor- a new word marissa thank you co-vigilantes <laughs> <laughs> very yes, that's good yeah that's very good all right thank you all uh, we'll look forward to hearing you again next monday Thanks, Jane. Thanks, thanks, Jane. Thank you. Marissa Lennox at CARP, David Kravitz at Zoomer Media, and Peter Mugridge at Zoomer Magazine. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.